welcome to Science Fiction Double Feature. It's summer, it's been hot, in London at least, and what better way to while away a summer afternoon than learning about private eyes in both fiction and reality. This month, we talk to Christiana Ellis, author of Phyllis Esposito, Interdimensional Private Eye, and Professor Rodri Jeffries-Jones, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh. Esposito is another character that I just immensely enjoyed spending time with. She was sarcastic and funny, getting in and out of problems using her wit and witticism. But this book isn't just your average detective novel. Here's author Christiana Ellis introducing us to Phyllis's universe. Yes, so the story of Phyllis Esposito, Interdimensional Private Eye, focuses on the title character. She is a private detective who works in a setting where the idea of parallel dimensions is not only real, but understood and explored. And not everybody in this world deals with any of that, but some people do. And in particular, Phyllis herself has a portal generator embedded in her left arm, which allows her to jump between these parallel dimensions at will. And so what she does is specialize in cases where someone needs the help of a private eye who can jump between parallel dimensions. And so in particular, the case that opens the book is an elf from a dimension where elves are real, who has appeared in Phyllis's dimension saying she was supposed to arrive with her brother, but her brother didn't show up. Can we find him? And that's uh, the initiation of the story, but it expands from there as in any good detective story, the mystery gets deeper and deeper with elements involving dwarven mafiosos and intelligent nanorobotic assassins and aliens and all sorts of stuff. I I described another book as bonkers, but I think this one now takes the title of bonkers because of all the, just so many different bits of sci-fi and fantasy and everything between. Did you always have an idea of bringing these things together or did it evolve as you wrote it? So I'll happily accept the bonkers title. Uh, It was certainly written from its very conception as a pastiche that I I came up with a premise that would allow me to just put anything I wanted in it, essentially. Uh, It was actually originally written as an experiment in serialization, where I decided as a challenge to myself to try writing a serial story with daily entries. So every single day, I would write a new segment that would have to be at least 500 words long, and then I would post it to the website. So basically, I couldn't ever go back. Whatever I had written, that was established now. And so there was no option of starting something and then realizing, oh, I have a better idea, and then going back and fixing it. No, it was only forward progress. But I'm very happy with the result. And so part of the reason for the pastiche was I wanted a story that would allow me to take the narrative in any direction I thought of. And sure enough, it uh, worked out. And so the book now is a smoothed out, polished version of the original serial. I guess you would have taken more things out, but 
like what did you smooth over like were there were there plots that you've completely left out or was it more like reducing kind of just build up of exposition over time because of the way you were writing it essentially i left i would say the entire story in but what i removed were redundancies there were places in the original serial where I would finish on some sort of a cliffhanger point because that's an exciting way to do it. But in the next entry, I would have to spend a couple of sentences sort of catching people up. Like if they didn't read the last bit, you know, a week ago, they want to just to briefly remember where we were. And so there's a little bit of pseudo recap at the beginning of most of these segments. And certainly if someone's just reading it as a standard novel, they won't need that. And so I had to remove a fair amount of that. And then there were just a few places here and there where there were consistency issues, just needing to make sure that things are spelled the same throughout the story and all of that sort of thing. But pretty much all of the actual plot threads and characters from the original serial were preserved in the final version. Did you feel like the format and the way you were trying to write every day shaped the stories that progressed, or did you have a good idea of where you wanted to go? (laughs) I think that it did absolutely shape the story because I did not, when I started it, know what the ending would be. There was no outline at all. And it occurred to me actually uh, a little ways in that a mystery is perhaps not the most easy uh, genre to write that way. But uh, overall, one of the things that I find really interesting in terms of storytelling is the idea of the magic trick of making it look like something was planned all along when it was actually built organically as the story was told, right? And so, for example, when in a mystery you have some dramatic payoff, I like it when the viewer or reader can't tell whether did the author know all along that that was going to be the result or did they manage to pull it together in a way that seems as if it was always known. And I feel like I've rambled that a little bit, but the the point is that I wrote it very much like one of those round robin challenges where each author would write a chapter and then hand it off to the next author with a challenging position to start in, except that I was doing it to myself every single day. It definitely shaped the narrative though, because I wanted to finish each of these serial segments with a little bit of a cliffhanger. And so it kind of keeps the tension up because there's constantly changing circumstances that require the character to be very proactive and uh, adaptive to deal with all of the new things coming at her constantly. I felt like that when, um, especially when Phyllis is making deals with Eddie. Like, oh my God, what? how is she going to get herself out of this? Did you ever get stuck? Uh, or did you ever, I guess you did not write yourself into a dead end, but like, did you ever think you had written yourself into a dead end and were like, oh my God, how am I going to get out of this? Uh, there were definitely some challenging moments. And in particular, towards the end is when I had the most difficulty there, just because, of course, When I'm in the early stages, I can just throw anything I think of into the story. But once you're getting towards the end, it 
needs to come together in some kind of a satisfying way where it doesn't feel like there's a lot of loose ends or plot threads that didn't go anywhere. You want everything to resolve in a satisfying way. And in some cases, that's why it can be helpful for authors to create an outline in advance. But because there was no outline this time, I was occasionally thinking ahead and dreading certain conclusions because I had no idea how certain situations would turn out. Now, ultimately, I'm very happy with how it uh, came out, but towards the end, there was a lot of anxiety just thinking, how am I going to resolve this? I have created a threat that seems impossible to defeat, and while that's great for dramatic tension, eventually I have to write her the main character either defeating it or losing, which sounds not very fun. So I have to come up with how she could possibly do it. I've written myself a problem that I now have to solve. <laughs> and it was quite the problem. <laughs> yes. When you finished it and when you were turning it into the novel that I read at least, did you ever go, I wish I could change this and I, I wish I didn't have that plot point or that character or were you generally quite satisfied with, with the whole arc? Generally, I was pretty satisfied. I think that there were certain elements that I think could have been more, but because the plot was moving so fast at certain points, there was just kind of no time to ever go back and deal with any of that. For example, uh, in the first act of the story, I mentioned Dwarven Mafioso, and so we have a character that because the whole story is told from Phyllis's perspective, she meets a character only very briefly, has a few interactions with him, and then her story continues on, and we really don't learn very much about that guy. And so occasionally there were things like that where I felt like there was perhaps more interesting story to tell, but because the novel perspective is so tight within Phyllis's point of view... If Phyllis doesn't see it, how could it ever show up again? But I don't think there was ever anything that I really regretted including. I think I was just always putting things in only because I was excited to include it. And then it was just a challenge of trying to make everything feel at least a little bit cohesive. So I think in the last couple of years, some of my favorite novels, including this one, have been combinations of genres, whatever genres those are. What, as someone who's written their way through one of these now, do you think are the benefits or pitfalls from mixing things up in this way? Well, I think one of the primary benefits is it gives an opportunity to surprise the reader in a lot of ways. And in some ways, because this story was written the way it was, that included me. Every so often when I would come up with new, some new concept to include another ingredient to toss into the, the stew pot here, it uh, just gives this opportunity for delight, right? Something unexpected, but surprising in a pleasant way. And as I mentioned, this whole concept was designed from the ground up to allow me to put anything I could think of in it. The whole concept, the premise of all of these parallel worlds was that there could be one world where everybody is cyborgs and another world where it's fantasy like Lord of the Rings and another world where uh, it's almost identical to the one you live in, including another version of you. But all of those things mixing together uh, just allowed me to pick and choose every anything that I wanted. But as far as the general genre blending, I really enjoy that too, just because it feels 
fresh in a way that sometimes a more conventional uh, static version of genre storytelling can feel stale. Now, obviously, people are writing new science fiction or new fantasy or new horror that stays really within the established genre boundaries and is great. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think these remixes can introduce sort of new elements in a way that makes it exciting. Yes. One of the things that I absolutely loved was the unintended consequence of mixing magic and technology. So I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, but like the amulet and the nanobots. I just I just love it. I can't imagine like the stroke of genius where you thought that up. Was that just a, a throw in and then it became more of a thing? Or like, I guess, like, how did that come to be? Because I absolutely loved it. It was one of the elements that I knew early on. So the the amulet is introduced at the beginning with the the client that comes to see Phyllis. Her only real clue that Phyllis has to go on is that she received what she understands to be a magic amulet when she transferred dimensions, but hands it over to Phyllis and it's just a USB thumb drive, or at least that's what it appears to be because it explodes when she puts it in her computer. And so what it is from there and how it grows and all of that uh, includes, as you mentioned, both the magical and uh, technological aspects. And that is the fun part of blending everything, right? Is it's the chocolate and peanut butter or occasionally a more surprising combination. If I'm going to blend all of these things, I want the story to be about those intersections. And so I thought about the idea, if someone has some sort of a magical protection charm on them, but that magic was developed in a world where who knows anything about technology, how does that actually interact with some other form of powerful advanced technology and what might the result be? And that, of course, develops into what turns out to be the primary threat of the novel. And I felt that there was definitely limits to the technology and the world that we passed through in the book. Were there limitations that you wanted to include, even though you wanted it to be kind of limitless in the type of uh, possibilities that you could unleash? Did you have a, a sense of order in your mind about what could work and what, what would break the kind of reality that you created? Obviously, with technology, there's always going to need to be some measure of rules for it to feel plausible. And I think I always wanted to just try to introduce just enough of a box for the technological things that it feels like something that could theoretically exist. So for example, uh, we have, you know, the idea of nanobots, right? Well, each individual tiny little robot is not all by itself a supercomputer. It's only when they get together. And so what does that mean? Uh, so if there was some sort of a an artificial intelligence controlling all of these nanobots that wanted to eat the whole world in a gray goose scenario, right? It's a classic sort of science fiction trope. But if we have parallel dimensions, does it make any sense that it could actually expand from one to another if they would be completely isolated from each other. And so that starts introducing those limits. But then magic has limits in a different way, right? Because in theory, if it's magic, you could imagine it being able to do anything. But often magical systems are more satisfying when they have their own limitations. And so once again, the idea of technological limitations being primarily about 
capabilities and what each piece of technology is able to do and how it works. Whereas magic limitations are more fickle in a way, like they're less predictable, they're less science-based, but nonetheless still limitations. And just sticking those together to see how they interact was a lot of fun. Despite we range across several different worlds or dimensions, uh, we end up with quite a compact group of characters who form the core kind of adventuring party. What do you think makes a good team in your eyes? Because like, the team did not always see eye to eye. Did you always have those types of characters when you were thinking of the novel, or, or was it like what you had to work with by the time you were trying to build up at the end? Well, the story begins, like many film noir style or hard-boiled detective fiction, uh, with a single private eye protagonist who is searching through things. And she interacts with various side characters in her journey to solve this mystery, but it's primarily a solo effort. And in particular, as a character, Phyllis at least claims to like it that way. And early on in the story, we're sort of occasionally hinting at some of her history and why she might be a little bit of a loner in this current situation, but she has need to interact with various people as she's trying to solve this mystery. But I personally, as an author, (laughs) am a sucker for found family stories. I think a lot of people enjoy them is why they appear so often. This idea that a diverse group of people that are unrelated otherwise are drawn together by fate and find that they have to work together as a team, and then they come to uh, enjoy and respect each other. I love those stories. And so I think part of the narrative, the themes for Phyllis as a character, because of course we have the plot that, you know, the actual ins and outs of the mystery, but another big part of the theme of this character is Phyllis starting to recognize the value in trusting and depending on other people. And being able to let go of some of her personal baggage that has prevented her from doing that in the past. I notice it says uh, number one after the novel. Are you going to continue uh, with more adventures of Phyllis? Well, so there is in the print version, there is what it refers to as book one, two, and three. And those are kind of just acts of the primary story. So I don't at the moment... Uh, necessarily have a plan to continue the story past what is in the the printed version or the ebook version. Uh, it, that's that's kind of the the arc of it, and I just divided it into book one, two, and three, just because those are sort of like the broadly speaking. If if you imagined a TV show, it might be season one, two, and three, for example. Uh, aside from the serialized fiction, which turned into Phyllis Esposito, you do fiction podcasts. Dating all the way back to 2006, believe it or not, some of the earliest podcast novels uh, either were on their own feeds or showed up at a website called patiobooks.com. And this includes some of, you know, the pioneers of the format like T. Morris and Scott Sigler and Mer Lafferty. And so it was relatively early on that I had a novel called Nina Kimberly the Merciless, which is sort of a comedic fantasy novel about a teenage barbarian princess. And I had thought about using some of the traditional means of trying to get it published, but I had also always been a fan of performative creativity, like 
theater and voice acting. And so the I because I had already gotten into podcasting, the idea of doing my own audiobook where I read it myself and I do all the character voices and everything was something that just appealed to me. It sounded fun to do. And this was before it was a, you know, a something that has exploded into a much bigger phenomenon. But I put it together and it seemed like a lot of the people who listened to it liked it. And it actually grew from there to my first print publishing contract with Dragon Moon Press for Nina Kimberly, uh, The Merciless. And from there, I have since done other short projects, but I also did two seasons of Space Casey, which is like a radio play and released as a podcast. And that's a, another comedic science fiction story. And that one, unlike an audiobook, doesn't have all, sort, all of the narration. It's primarily just told through dialogue and sound effects. But I've put those together, and uh, I also just do a variety of nonfiction podcasts. Those are primarily the fiction ones, but I also uh, I, I don't know how to classify exactly, but I run some Dungeons & Dragons actual plays where we're telling an original story through uh, the collaborative forum of Dungeons & Dragons, and that's released as both a video stream and a podcast as well. Uh, out of all the different ways that you've created stories, which one do you like best? Ah, uh, well, certainly I would say that the Dungeons and Dragons storytelling provides the most immediate gratification, for sure, in the sense of uh, I'm getting together with my friends and we're putting something out there, and then it's just it's immediate and visceral, and the feedback is instantaneous because I'm it's collaborative effort to begin with. So it's fun in the sense that it's easy in that regard. I do, you know, it does take some effort, but it's also immediate, kind of like a theater production. Like once, you know, you're doing it, you're doing it, and it doesn't take all of the behind the scenes effort. Uh, whereas writing, I find to be very satisfying in the long run, but as any author I'm sure will tell you, it's not always fun during the actual work part. <laughs> I, I follow a lot of writers on Twitter, and it's always the like, why am I doing this tweet switch? I'm like, oh, man. Indeed. <laughs> so the question I always ask everyone, and it sounds like you are probably also a sci-fi fan and a fantasy fan, what books have you read lately uh, that you would recommend to the listeners? Ah, well, uh, I have a couple that immediately come to mind. And one is, I believe it's the Stone Sky Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin. The first book is the fifth season. And I want to say that the second book is The Stone Gate. Gosh, I'm embarrassed that I don't have it more readily at hand. But N.K. Jemisin is the author. It's a trilogy, and she's also written other things. But I read the first two books of that trilogy recently, and it's just amazing stuff. It's fantasy, but it's sort of a far future fantasy imagining uh, a variety of magic that I haven't ever seen before that's very sort of earth and stone based. And it just tells a really remarkable story that I, I highly recommend. And then uh, another uh, first two books of a trilogy, because the third book hasn't come out yet, uh, is the series by Alex White. And I will just briefly say, full disclosure, I am friends with Alex White. But nonetheless, the first two books are really remarkable. The first book is A Big Ship at the End of the Universe. Second book is A Bad Deal for the Whole Galaxy. and 
it is a perfect example of some of what we were talking about earlier in terms of blending genre elements, because this is very much a science fiction story with spaceships in space and people traveling throughout the galaxy and all of these sorts of space stations and science fictional elements. But it is also part of the world building that everyone has some specific kind of magic. Like there are a whole bunch of different categories of magic, but everyone has one of those kinds that gives them the ability to do a certain thing. And some people are better at it than others, uh, but everyone has the one. And there is actually one of the characters who's the rare exception that has no magic at all. But it is a story that tells uh, a really compelling mystery, but it's within this setting of spaceships, but everyone also has magic spells and it's really cool. is a mostly morally upright do-gooder, but is this the case with Private Eyes in our own, perhaps less exciting dimension? Professor Rodri Jeffries-Jones has written a lot about surveillance in Private Eyes, including the intriguingly titled We Know All About You, the story of surveillance in Britain and America. So, let's start with the basics. What is surveillance? Well, in the uh, appendix to my book We Know All About You, I offer a definition of surveillance, which is spying on a mass scale. Now, a lot of people use the phrase mass surveillance, but under my definition, that would be uh, tautology. Some sociologists like David Flaherty and uh, David Lyon have gone beyond that, and they say we need to define surveillance by its purpose. And they argue that its purpose is supervision and uh, and control. As to the uh, actors, the actors in Surveillance are widely assumed, for example, by George Orwell in 1984 and um, Michel Foucault and Marcus Atwood. It's widely assumed that the actors are primarily the state. Uh, However, in fact, the private actors are important as well. And these range from private detectives to corporations and include some contractors to uh, government departments. Has surveillance always operated in this way? Or I guess a better way of phrasing it is like, what's considered the beginning of surveillance? Yeah, well, here here it becomes useful to make a distinction between spying and uh, surveillance, because spying is known as the second oldest profession. And there's uh, really nothing new about doing spying, spying on a widespread basis. But mass espionage, or surveillance as we often mean it today, really originated in 19th century America. And it took two forms, both of which were private. The first was labor espionage, undertaken on an industrial scale by the Pinkerton Detective Agency and by its numerous competitors. There were were hundreds of detective agencies by the end of the 19th century. So the first form it took was, surveillance took, was um, detection often used in uh, combating labor unions. The second was surveillance for the purpose of credit rating. Now, before the Civil War, uh, a chap called Louis Dupin was a businessman who became famous because he got involved in defending the civil rights of black citizens. But his day job, his primary activity was to set up a firm which established the creditworthiness of businessmen. And this was particularly important in America because it's a huge country. And if you wanted to do 
some business with someone in San Francisco and you live in Boston, it is very difficult for you as an individual to establish the bona fides of the guy you are uh, dealing with. So uh, Tapan set up the system and then another guy took over called Dunn, whereby people would look into the reliability of businessmen. By, by 1880, this firm originally set up by Tapan and now called Dunn, had 10,000 professional agents. And that's really puts into the shade any other kind of surveillance going on in America. And the firm listed almost 800,000 businessmen whose bona fides could be established for a fee. Is that the originator of like what we consider credit agencies today then? I think the, that uh, the um, credit rating business is now um, a major business. And of course, it's not all that controversial. It's just common sense that you know want to know something about uh, the person you're dealing with. But um, private, private detection especially using labor disputes, is much more controversial. I think it's partly to be understood uh, in terms of anti-statism. Now, to give an example of that, Abraham Lincoln, in the last year of his presidency, just before he was assassinated, established the United States Secret Service. He set it up in order to guard the, uh, the dollar from counterfeiters. And then it moved on to tracking down moonshiners in the American South, the distillers of illegal whiskey. But then in 1871, it was given the job of penetrating the Ku Klux Klan, which it did successfully under the leadership of a guy called Hiram Whitley. But in 1876, the Southern states, having been defeated and having been expelled from the Union, were now allowed back into the Union, and the political balance changed in the United States. And uh, the southern states absolutely hated the Secret Service and starved it of funds and developed the view that any kind of detective work done by the federal government was a form of tyranny. And that opened the door to uh, private operators. Another factor, I think, uh, one might mention is the influence of the Enlightenment of the late 18th century, which is felt, of course, in Europe as, as well as in, uh, in America. But the Enlightenment fostered a spirit of inquiry, and the spirit of inquiry lies at the roots of the detection uh, profession. And who, who paid these people? Well, in the 19th century, it tended to be employers in labor disputes. That was the prime source of income for detective agencies. But by the 20th century, divorce work was important for detectives, particularly because of the rise in the divorce rate facilitated by more sympathetic um, uh, legislation in the early 20 year, first 20 years of the 20th century. So there was a bit of diversification by the early uh, 20th century. Now, since then, the ease and respectability of divorce have undermined that profession a little bit. But if you look at the yellow pages for Los Angeles or San Francisco for the late 20th century, you'll see that they still and play a role in that regard. And uh, in marital disputes, uh, one partner distrusting the other, they'll, they'll chase down straying lovers and, and missing and disputed children, still on a large scale. And if you look, go online to look at, their, at the services they provide, uh, it still features prominently. So is this growth period where we get the kind of archetypical idea of the private eye, or is that a complete invention of Hollywood? 
the term private eye actually derives from the logo of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Uh, the, the letterheads and their advertising have a picture of an, an eye and uh, with the inscription, the all-seeing eye. So that's, it. that's the origin of it. So it does originate in a, in a real detective agency. But nevertheless, one could argue that Hollywood and, the pop, and pop culture has had uh, an influence, in particular the idea of an individual man or woman of integrity pitched against the corrupt state and against the dullards of the public police force. And, and these, these individuals, um, uh, they, they present an image of themselves in fiction as people of great integrity. For example, um, Raymond Chandler's uh, uh, character, Philip Marlowe, in Lady in the Lake, says that he undertakes no divorce work. He takes a much more moral stance than other detectives. And there's a strain of that. It's not just American, but you get the same kind of approach in Sherlock Holmes and in the character Hercule Poirot. (laughs) That's amazing. I think all the detective stories I've read as well are just, you know, they all have some sort of tragic past, but then they're all like, you have this like moral core that, they go beyond their their duty by being paid a pittance and then manage to solve the crime as well. That is a Hollywood image, isn't it? I mean, the reality is different. And it's interesting that um, people like Raymond Chandler put poor scorn on the majority of detectives, but this is the one good detective. That's the image they try to perpetuate. We, we know that the Pinkerton Detective Agency was established in the 19th century, but why, do, why are private detectives allowed to operate, or I guess these firms of private detectives allowed to operate? One has to uh, look at first at the attempts to control them. There have been attempts to control them. For example, in 1893, uh, Congress passed the Anti-Pinkerton Act, which explicitly forbade the Pinkerton Agency from doing any labor work. Now, that was entirely ineffective because the lawyers in America, including the judges, all had a corporation background. That's the only way you could make money as a lawyer was to work for a corporation in the 19th century. Now, that changed with divorce because divorce lawyers could adjudicate in a labor dispute without feeling pulled to one side or the other. But anyway, the Anti-Pinkerton Act was um, an expression of the indignation in a day, but but failed to be effective. Then in, in 1936, there was a major congressional uh, Senate investigation in the United States, chaired by Robert M. LaFollette Sr., into civil liberties and, in particular, unfair labor practices, which the uh, committee said should be outlawed. But because of intensive lobbying, an effective law never came into effect in the late 1930s. So America never has had effective legislation. In this country, we were a bit later uh, approaching the subjects, but in 2001, there was the Private Security Industry Act, which uh, st- enabled the process of licensing of detective agencies. And that perhaps could have been a first step in the direction of control, but it made no mention of one of the staples of detective agencies, private agencies, which was labor work. In 2010, though, the the Labour government of um, Gordon Brown strengthened the provisions of earlier employment acts and explicitly prohibited blacklisting because this was uh, the main object of the um, extensive surveillance of Labour, that is, 
to find out who were the ringleaders, who was causing trouble, who were trying to organize uh, unions in the workplace and get them blacklisted so that uh, they wouldn't be troubling any uh, employers who wanted to be in total control of the of the workplace. Now, I think it's still an open question whether that's been effective. In 2012, the Welsh government issued a procurement advice note. This uh, created the means whereby local government could blacklist any firm which had in turn blacklisted workers. It remains to be seen how effective that's going to be. So the general position is, I think, that private eyes have been poorly regulated on both sides of the Atlantic. Why have they been allowed to continue? Well, many people have tried to stop their malpractices. It's just that they haven't been all that successful. So you've written about different ways we're surveilled by private companies. Do you see this as a continuing trend, I guess, aside from just generic private eyes? And do you see any curbs or restrictions on the the accumulation of this sort of data? Well, there have been some changes. In the 1920s in America, um, companies began to realize that uh, private detectives were unreliable when it came to combating labor unions because they often exaggerated the threat, the threat of a strike, for example, amongst the workers, just in order to get themselves employed by the by the businessmen concerned. And they began to realize also that uh, the detective agencies really had no vested interest in the destruction of, of, of labor, of uh, trade unions, because if they destroy the trade unions, they'd no longer have um, a raison d'etre. The employers would have no, no further need for them. And they began to complain about, um, to quote one employer, um, detective agencies that played both sides. Now, one reaction to this was to set up in-house uh, surveillance units. So Ford Motor Company, for example, uh, they decided they weren't going to employ private detectives anymore. They would employ their in, in-house um, agents to penetrate the labor unions, find out information about them. And that's operated on a vast scale in the case of that particular company. Uh, and other companies did the same thing. Another trend in the 1920s was for national private agencies to be formed, or private organizations, I should say, rather than agencies. In the United States, this was done by uh, a former intelligence chief of the um, American Armed Forces called Ram- Ralph Van Diemen. And over here, it was organized by Admiral Blinker Hall, who had won fame as a codebreaker in the First World War. Each of them ran a service for employers, whereby for a fee, they would be able to tell the employers who the troublemakers were in their plants. And this kind of national organization um, was almost pseudo, it was pseudo-official. They had, in this country, they had contacts with MI5. In the United States, they had contacts with the U.S. Army Intelligence Corps uh, and, and so on. So that was a, a kind of change in the, in the type of organization. Now, there have been attempts to curb those companies. Um, agencies set up by Ralph Van Diemen had to be disbanded in the 1990s, but it was immediately replaced by another one. And similarly, there's been an attempt to curb them in the United States. But in fact, these attempts have, have been as unsuccessful as the attempts to uh, to curb individual uh, detective uh, agencies. Periodically, the press and the media have uh, exposed what's going on, but effective regulation has not really followed suit. So how wary 
you think people are about the extent of what private companies know about them? Well, I think there's a heightened awareness of privacy now. And uh, people are repeatedly reminded by emails and so on coming from their banks, telling them to be more careful and explaining how to guard their passwords and so forth and not to deal with third parties uh, who, who, who ask for uh, private information about one's finances and so forth. So people are, I think, individually on guard against hacking. But in spite of press coverage of the issue, uh, for example, in the wake of the Snowden revelations, uh, the awareness of and respect for the importance of other people's rights is not high. So opinion polls have indicated that there is widespread support for the idea of intrusions in the name of national security. So to sum up, people think surveillance is, 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 is okay, but not in my case. Uh, and uh, there's poor awareness, really, of the threat posed by inappropriate private surveillance. It's just not part of the national ideology in either the US or the UK. I do quite enjoy the uh, not-in-my-backyard kind of approach to surveillance. That's very strange. That's right. Is there anything that people can do who do care <laughs> about their data to limit the collection? I'm, I'm afraid that individuals are, are quite uh, powerless. I mean, you could try to keep a, a low profile all the time, but you know, at the price of ending up like a, an earthworm, keeping off the social media will help. I don't think the social media are to be relied upon at all. I mean, they're very useful things to uh, to exploit from the individu individual's point of view, but there is really no means of guarding your privacy, as many exposés have shown. I think the real remedy lies in stronger legislation and in international uh, cooperation, because it's not within the power of an individual country very often, unless you have um, totally controlled societies such as China's. International cooperation, I think, amongst democracies is, is important. The European Union, I think, has taken the lead in uh, trying to legislate uh, against abuses. So we hear about, you know, Russia a lot. We hear about kind of non-state and state actors who have, you know, either hack or have tried to influence us through different things. Is that as big a worry as private companies or is that more directed at kind of disrupting state operations? When it comes to um, the kind of activity you're talking about, um, cyber attacks, uh, mass invasions of, of privacy, and uh, I think in the case of Russia, it is uh, state-organized, but they have um, a number of cutouts. The, the process of uh, attribution becomes uh, important. What states like Russia use is a circuit breaker. So you can trace the evidence up to a certain point and then you lose it before it gets to the people at the top. Now, this is not peculiar to the Russians. We are getting upset just now that the Russians are trying to interfere in elections in this country, in America, and in other European countries as well. But uh, it, it, it has been the case that both we and the Americans have consistently uh, intervened in the political affairs of other nations, uh, certainly throughout the Cold War and probably long before then. And that's where I get the phrase uh, circuit breaker, which was used in connection with the CIA op operations. There had to be a break in the circuit so that nobody, nobody could point the accusing finger at the president. In reality, 
if you look at the American operations, such as the attempts to assassinate Castro, the overthrow of democratically elected governments in Guatemala and, and Chile, in the end, the trail always runs in truth to the White House. But they're very careful to insert the circuit breaker so that the evidential trail is broken before people find out what's going on. Although historians since then have managed to find out what's going on. And I, I imagine that in the Russian case, it's very similar. So Putin can strenuously deny that Russia had anything to do with it. And he was certainly not contemplating, uh, would not contemplate fascinating everybody in Salisbury or anywhere else. But the truth is rather different. Even though she may only exist in fiction, Phyllis will always remain the detective of my heart. Hopefully, I'll manage to steer clear of private eyes in real life, though. And if you want to find more about Christiana and Rogery's works, you can find them in the show notes. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. So read wisely. Thanks for listening. <laughs>